tonight to School Psych Podcast. Very excited to be here having a good conversation. My name is Rachel. I am a school psychologist working in Maryland right now. Uh, I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca. We're, we're down a man tonight, so we, we got to you know, do double duty without Eric, but we miss him and we'll have him back next time. Um, but I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca. She's going to talk about how you can participate if you're watching live tonight and um, also going to introduce our guest, Rebecca. Hello, everybody. I'm Rebecca. I am a school psychologist currently in the state of Florida. And we're so happy to have our live audience when you're able to join us um, in the live conversation. So if you are watching us on YouTube right now, you can just sign into your YouTube account and comment right alongside the video. Even if you're watching the video at a later time, you can comment alongside the video and it lines up um, to the moment to the same minutes in the conversation and we can continue that conversation over time. If like many people you are listening uh, to the podcast on your commute or at another time, please feel free to uh, add your thoughts or questions or ideas or experiences on our social media platforms. You can comment on our School Psyched podcast Facebook page. You can message us or comment right on the page under the under the post for this tonight's event. Or you can comment on School Psyched, your school psychologist, um, which is a very active page that includes the podcast, but a lot of other things. Um, and you can also comment on Twitter. And if you do, please use the hashtag psychedpodcast. I'll be looking for the hashtag and for notifications to our at podcast psych Twitter handle. Um, or you can uh, tweet at Rachel or I also, we're on there. Um, and I think that's it. <laughs> and now I'm very excited to welcome our wonderful guest. Dr. Ben Sedley is a clinical psychologist and acceptance and commitment therapy act practitioner with years of experience working with kids, adolescents, and families facing mental health difficulties. He currently works in private practice with adults and teenagers struggling with trauma, OCD, anxiety, and depression. He is the author of the book, Stuff That Sucks, A Teen's Guide to Accepting What You Can't Change and Committing to What You Can, and co-author of Stuff That's Loud, A Teen's Guide to Unspiraling When OCD Gets Noisy with Dr. Lisa Coyne. He is also the father of three wonderful noisy kids and loves the Ramones and the class. Welcome, Dr. Sedley. I know you asked me to call you Ben, so welcome, Ben. <laughs> Hi, welcome. It's lovely to be here. It is two o'clock on a Monday afternoon in New Zealand. It's supposed to be summer, but a rainstorm just started, so... For those who haven't been to New Zealand, it's good to know in Wellington that summer is the best day of the year, and we all enjoy it a lot. Um, <laughs> I would share my Twitter handle with you, but I finally I left Twitter this weekend. I've had oh. enough watching it on the watching it sink. I got bored of watching it sink, so I'm out. But you can find me on Instagram on stuff that's loud. Okay, that's great. I'm definitely going to follow you there. Um. So just to get us started, I, I often recommend your book, Stuff That's Loud, to teens and their parents. And I find it a really just warm and helpful explanation of uh, what can go on with kids who struggle with OCD and anxiety. But I wonder, before we even get to that, 
Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to work with kids with OCD and uh, write books for them? Oh, life just keeps taking you in surprising turns. I, I think I became a psychologist a long time ago because I knew I enjoyed working with children and teenagers and I was almost ready to go to teacher's college. I was working as a teacher's aide and then I kind of realized while I was a teacher's aide that when a child's looking sad, I want to be able to ask them what's wrong, not tell them to get back on with their maths. And that appealed to me to go be, uh, to retrain it, to finish my psychology degree and become a clinical psychologist. When I got to my first job at Child and Adolescent Mental Health, there are a lot of people who kind of love the younger, working with younger children and seem kind of worried about, more nervous about working with the teenagers. So I ended up doing that work a lot. Um, these days, my practice is adults and teenagers. Um, stuff that sucks. The first book I wrote came about because I realized there's a million, billion self-help books and they're all just, A, they all look the same and none of them look like books that any teen I've ever met wants to pick up. Um, and they often have things like, you know, the same book is for adults, but adapted for teens on the cover. And that didn't match the teenagers I knew. But all, more importantly, I wanted to write a book that spent a lot of time validating the experience. We all know when we're working with a young person, we don't jump straight into here's the answers. We really put effort into helping, helping, making sure the young person knows that we know what's going on. We understand we're sitting with them not sitting all smugly with the answers. And self-help books all seem to say, hey, I've got all the answers to fix you. And that just didn't resonate with me or anyone I worked with. So I wrote Stuff That Sucks. Um, the American edition of Stuff That Sucks is called A Teen's Guide to Accepting What You Can't Change and Committing to What You Can. The original, the UK edition, which got published in every other part of the world, doesn't have the word teen on the cover at all, um, which is what I initially wanted. But the point of that power, the goal in that book is to spend at least the first third just validating experience, just saying, I understand what sadness feels like and anxiety, what feels like. Um, even though I don't know you, I know that you're struggling and how hard that is. And here's some of the reasons why you might be struggling. It's weird because you write a self-help book and you're writing for everyone. So you're writing for no one. Um, but trying to capture that even though I'm not sitting alongside you, I understand you're going through really hard stuff and there's no just simple, just do this. And that seemed to really resonate with a lot of people and got a lot of good feedback. And it was, it actually blows my mind. Um, when I met people in, in the US or in Europe or in South America or even people in Africa or Middle East um, who read my book and talked about how it helped them or resonated with them. And that is someone all the way over here in New Zealand, the idea that words I've written are making an impact to people so far away. Just what a blessing, you know? Um, and one of the people that I got to meet who read my book and liked it was Lisa Coyne, who worked at an adolescent inpatient OCD clinic in Massachusetts at the time, the McLean Center. And she talked about how all the children, all the teenagers at McLean Center all 
get a copy of stuff that sucks when they arrive and they talked about how can we she asked me how we can make a OCD specific one and I said I would happily do that with you if we could work together on it because Lisa is Lisa Coyne is one of my clinical crushes in many many ways she's just the psychologist that I'd want to be when I grow up which is hilarious because I'm a foot taller than her um, but she just more than anyone more than anyone I've ever met I'm going to say I'm going to be definitive is just so present and caring and intellectually sharp and emotionally there with every single person she works with um, and the fact that I got to write the book stuff that's loud with her um, was just an absolute honor and the two of us via technology you know we haven't even been in the same room since that initial first chat it was all done via just a lot of confusing time zones trying to figure out what the time was in boston versus new zealand and find times when we could both meet online and write online and and we had many plans to go catch up and do book launches together and workshops together and then that little pandemic thing happened and um <laughs> we haven't had a chance to do that yet so that's a long way of saying stuff that's loud came from a whole bunch of unexpected um, conversations and steps that I took. I've always done some work with OCD, but that's just became a much bigger part of my work over the last couple of years. Um, and that's been really, really lovely. Um, yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful. And I, at anyone that works, um, school psychologists that work in the Boston area or um, even in the New York area know the reputation of um, McLean Hospital and their programs for young people. And uh, it's just an amazing resource in, in so many ways um, for uh, other mental health people because they, they do amazing work. So uh, it's great that um, that she used your first book and uh, that you got to partner with her. I think that's really, wow. Um, have you found in the time that you began working on the book and it came out to now that more teens and adolescents are struggling with um, OCD in particular, or or we know that they are, I think, in terms of the data, at least in the United States, with anxiety. But do you find that OCD in particular also seems to be increasing? You mean because of the pandemic or just because the whole world's a scary damn place at the moment? <laughs> yeah. um, I can't quote from data. I can tell you that. And, you know, my view has just been really skewed. The more I talk about OCD, the more people with OCD contact me. So yeah, I've, I'm certainly meeting a lot more people with OCD the more I talk about it. And that is, you know, a real, real, it's real special. I get to meet with people who are struggling, but really ready to do 
the amazing work that needs to be done um, and supported by their families. It's that's something super clever I was going to say just then, and boom, it's gone. So when it comes back to me, I might say it or it might. You guys just just pause there. Everyone insert something really clever that Ben was about to say and go, wow, that was the wisest thing Ben says in the podcast. Enjoy that. Well, while you're thinking that over, um, I, I, would, I just want to say too that I, I love the title, like some stuff that sucks. Like this just screams teenager to me. It screams like, you know, young people and it's just interesting. You know, I think that immediately it's like you said, it's not like those typical like self-help books. Like it, it, it sounds interesting so how did you come up with that title where did that come from <laughs> well actually you missed out because the original title i pitched to the public uh, the publisher was stuff that sucks and the stuff that makes the stuff that sucks suck more um but they ended up dropping that part from the title <laughs> i love that too <laughs> that's <great>. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the name of a chapter instead but um it's I'm a not a big fan of diagnoses at the best of times, and we're going to be talking about emotions and thoughts and rather than set diagnoses. And so stuff that sucks seems like a really good way of capturing just how the young people I was meeting with were feeling, that they were just having these thoughts and having these feelings that just hurt and sucked having them. And... How did I, I wanted to capture that in a way that would resonate with all the teens because I'm yet to meet a teen that doesn't have thoughts or feelings they hate and they wish weren't there or they found really sucky. So that's, that was, I didn't come up with any of the theory behind it. I didn't, I'm not one of the developers of acceptance and commitment therapy. I heard a lovely phrase by another ACT trainer um, Tim McLaughlin this week, he was described himself as a blister. And I think I could say that I'm a blister too. A blister shows up after the hard work is done. And I think that describes where I'm at in terms of the act. Other amazing researchers and clinicians developed act. And I have, I think a lot of young people like the way I describe these things. So I was just trying to write down those words. So I'm describing other people's amazing research and amazing therapies. Um, but like the word sucks and some of the other words I use in the book, um, the books, some people like the words. I particularly get excited when I make up new words and then I hear people using them later on and I'm like, wow, that word came from, from my books. You know, we talk about challenging your OCD at everywhere and every when. And we talk about working on sleep opportunity and just going, yeah, this is fun. We're making up words to help resonate, to help young people find the words. And if we can't find the words for them, they can, maybe they can make up their own words, and that's excellent too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of the words, um, part of the title um, includes the word spiraling. And I love your description of that. Um, and as we were talking before off air, school psychologists often are um, people who, in terms of mental health support, have the opportunity to spend the most time with kids that need help because it's often really difficult to get 
great help outside of the school. It's difficult for so many reasons. But um, and then school psychologists also don't have a ton of time um, to to, you know, in terms of like providing therapy. But the concepts are so helpful um, from your book because once kids have a better sense of what might be going on for them, why they might be feeling so uncomfortable, um, they can also advocate, you know, with their school psychologist, with their parents, and we can get them together. We can get them some resources and supports that make a difference. But but um, I say that because I'd love for you to explain a little bit for us how you how you the language that you use to describe what's happening in OCD, including spiraling. Could you kind of give us yeah. a sure? OCD is all about spiraling. Um, <laughs> let's start jump back a bit. Let's start with OCD. Um, which is people use it like a word and misuse it like a word um, a lot, talking about I'm OCD because I like things clean or I like things in order, and that's obviously not OCD at all. OCD is three letters, obsessions, compulsions, disorder. And the O, the obsessive obsessions or the intrusive thoughts, is I have a thought, and it might be a really specific thought like, I'm a terrible person or this particular chemical is going to make me sick. It might be a really vague thought, like just something bad's going to happen. It might be an image or just a feeling that things aren't right. And those things are all those intrusive, intrusive thoughts. And they show up and we don't like having them. So we do something to get rid of them or stop the bad thing happening that we're worried might happen. Um, and that's called a compulsion. And some of the compulsions we do are observable, like washing my hands or checking things over and over or Google research or um, doing things in certain numbers. Some of those compulsions, a lot of those compulsions are not observable by anyone else except for you. So they're compulsions that we do in our head, such as giving myself reassurance or counting or repeating or going over history checking things in my mind. Did I say that? Did I do that? What if I hurt that person? Some of the compulsions are done by someone else. Like we work with young people and their family are starting to all buy into the compulsions and having to manage things in a certain way to help the young person. And some of the compulsions nobody can observe because they're things that you don't do. So I'm not touching that or I'm not walking that way home or whatever. So those are all the things that can fit into the category of compulsions. As you can hear, that's a really wide category. Um, and then there's the D, the disorder, which is, it's only OCD if it's a disorder. If you like doing something, if you got, you know, just that's the way I like it, that's not a disorder, that's a quirk. If it's bringing the distress, if it's taking time or energy that you want to spend on doing things that matter to you, living your life, going to school, hanging out with your friends, then it's a disorder. And the way that OCD spirals really quickly to become a disorder is I have an intrusive thought and I don't like it and I do the compulsion, I get relief. I feel a bit better. So next time that intrusive thought shows up, I want to do the same thing or do something else to get that relief. And what we know is the more I try and do things to get relief, the more I have to do things to get the relief. And it starts spiraling and spiraling. And every single time I 
try and avoid or neutralize that intrusive thought, I'm accidentally giving myself a message that that thought is dangerous, that that thought is scary, maybe is the real thing happening. Um, and so it really quickly spirals. And so the book we've written, A Teen's Guide to Unspiraling When OCD Gets Noisy, is about how do we start breaking that cycle? You don't need to stop everything at once. You don't need to take gigantic steps because this is the great thing about spirals. They can spiral in, but they can spiral out as well. I can just take little steps against my OCD. This is, you know, my OCD wants me to do this. I'm going to choose to not do this or delay this or only do half of what it wants. And this is a step in the right direction, which is trying to break the spirals. Um, our book finishes with a beautiful quote by John Green, who wrote Turtles All the Way Down, um, which is, spirals grow infinitely small the farther you follow them inward, but they also grow infinitely large the further you follow them out. And Turtles All the Way Down is one of my favorite fiction representations of OCD. And so if you're working with a teenager and they want, you want them to feel validated or understood, um, or just know that they're not the only person in the world with this struggling with these things, then John Green's book is a great way to go. Um, but that's kind of why we talk about unspiraling. But you don't need to smash it all out in one day. You can take steps, and every step helps you take the next step. Mm. That makes sense. I love that imagery of them spirals getting bigger as you go against them. You look at the Milky Way, right? All the stars are in spirals. We guys, spirals can get really big. Yeah. So sometimes when kids are struggling with the, the strong desire not to have that thought um, or not to feel the way they feel because of the thought, it's it's really frightening for them to think about taking a small step against the compulsion, right? It's like, how, how do you convince a child, for example, or a teenager who is um, completing their rituals and compulsions in order to manage that thought to do something different when it's yeah. when it's kind of working right what those behaviors are working work, i mean they're impactful in terms of like the disorder they're not allowing them to do other things in their lives and that's why that's why it's a disorder but but they also are working temporarily so how do you get the how do you get them to buy in so rebecca let me tell you a story that i tell well, most people I work with, it normally comes out in one of the first sessions when I'm explaining what is OCD. Let's imagine that there's a bank robbery and it's just happened and the alarm's going off and the bank, the doors are still open and you happen to be the first police officer to get on the scene to try and investigate this bank robbery. And you look around and you find an eyewitness. And the witness says, I saw the bank robber run west. And you're like, amazing, thank you. And you go running west. But you don't find anyone. There's no sign that anyone's gone that way. So you go back to the bank. And oh my goodness, the witness is still there. 
You know, what happened? I went, I ran west and didn't find one. The witness like, my mistake. They went, they ran east. And you're like, thank you so much. And you go running off east trying to find this bank robber. No sign of them. You come back to the bank. And the witness is still standing there. And you're like, what happened? You told me they ran east. I didn't find them. And they're like, oh, sorry, my mistake. They ran north. About this time, you start being a bit suspicious, right? So rather than just doing what they tell you straight away and running in the direction they send you, you stop, you take a breath, and you have a look at this witness. And there's something really interesting you notice about this eyewitness. And that is, they're wearing a ski mask and holding a bag saying stolen loot. And that, to me, is what OCD is like, you know? You're doing all the right things to keep people safe at the wrong time, from the wrong information. And we even notice that the eyewitness hasn't even sneaked your lie. It's telling you, you need to avoid those things or not touch those things or wash those things or check those things. But he's actually got a sneakier lie happening. And a sneakier lie is you can't tolerate the distress of not knowing for sure. You can't handle the anxiety that comes with the uncertainty. Which is why I can tell you something's going to happen. You can say, hey, I know that's not going to happen. My parents have told me that's not going to happen. My science textbooks tell me that can't happen. I can be 99.9% .9 sure it's not going to happen. But what if it does? What if it does? I would, and I could have stopped it. That feels so awful. And that's where OCD keeps its power, by saying you can't know for sure. And it's completely correct on that, right? We can't know for sure. But the OCD is saying you can't handle the distress of not knowing for sure. And that's a really sneaky place to be. Because if we want to break that cycle, we want to stop the spiraling, then we can't replace something bad's going to happen with nothing bad's going to happen. We have to replace something bad's going to happen with, I don't know, let's find out. And that's what the book talks about, it talks about curiosity. I'm not sure what's going to happen. But damn, that's where the fun stuff is. Let's go find that out. There's room inside me for uncertainty. Not only is there room inside me for uncertainty, that's where all the action, the excitement happens. And this is some of this language, what we can use in the book. We talk about beating OCD with giving a crap, figuring out what matters to you. Why would you want to do these things? Then being curious, being willing, and being flexible. And that's what we're talking about. That's how we start figuring out to take these steps. Even though the OCD is screaming at me going, no, something really bad could happen. In fact, one thing that happens most of the time, I start challenging my OCD. My OCD gets louder and giving me more reasons why it's dangerous and I shouldn't beat it. And so when someone tells me that, they're always really surprised. I'm like, yay, that's brilliant news.
because um, it is, right? OCD suddenly for the first time knows it's under threat and it's having to work a whole lot harder. All the uh, Many of the young people I see with OCD, I say, what, what's OCD telling you will happen? If you don't do the compulsion, like, I don't know. OCD, OCD doesn't have to work very hard at all to be the boss. It just says, do this, and you're like, okay. But when we start choosing the challenger and OCD has to actually work harder to keep the power, that's a sign that it's worried, that it knows its, th its power is under threat. And that's a great place to be. That means we're in, we're taking the right steps out of the spiral because we're really stressing out the OCD. Would that be kind of akin to an extinction burst, as far as you know, you know, these these behaviors are in some way, you know, relieving the anxiety. It's even though it maybe isn't logical. You feel like you did this thing and the anxiety went away, and then you kind of fight against that a little bit or, or kind of question that and so you withhold that that reinforcement that you're kind of wanting and so that you said that OCD kind of challenges and, and ramps it up a little bit is that kind of like an extinction burst or Complete, absolutely it's an extinction burst but I prefer to talk about it as a little child having a tantrum in the supermarket um, which is an extinction burst too right <laughs> so it's that's what we're talking about we're talking about families about saying no to the small child demanding a lolly and saying, I will have a really bad tantrum and you having the point to choose at that point, well, I can give you that lolly candy. Um, I can give you that candy you're demanding or you can make as much noise as you want and we're not going to, it's not going to make a difference. Is that um, advice that you'd give to parents of kids who are struggling to suggest I could tell you the answer to that or I could reassure you in this moment or and it would you know like make you feel better right now or we could just sit with that not knowing you know kind of that's a fantastic question Rebecca it's because <laughs> So often parents understand the ideas of what we have to do with this exposure and response prevention. I have to bring myself close to the thing that scares me and then not do the compulsion and they try and do it for their child or make the child do it or demand the child do it. Um, and it doesn't work. A child, teenager, adult with OCD needs to choose to take the steps for themselves and not do it for anyone else's sake just because actually there's a life on the other side of this OCD that I want to have. Um, so what I suggest to parents, particularly when the young person is asking for reassurance, which is probably the most common ways they try and bring the parent in for the compulsions, um, is to say something along the lines on, sounds like OCD is being really mean to you right now. I can give you that answer if you want. Or we don't need to. So the parent's saying, I recognize it's OCD. If you want help fighting it, I can support you. I can sit with you. We can sit with this distress together. If you say, actually, I've had my wall right now, that's where you're at. But first, I'm going to make sure you realize that you're choosing to, you're choosing to say, this is my limit right now. This is where I'm not going to be fighting the OCD. Um, 
so I read the parents, I recognize that the OCD is there and I can't do it for you, but I've got you back if you want to say, actually, maybe I'll go five more minutes and come back and ask for reassurance then if I need it or something else. We had a guest a, a while ago, Renee Jane, who has a wonderful platform called GoZen. And one of her programs, it, it's online and it's for kids and their parents. And one is called Go Hackify and it's about OCD. And she suggests, and they're like cartoon stories for kids. And she suggests to kids to do the three Ds, do less, do it differently or delay. So it's kind of, like what you're saying in terms of like a baby step um, and putting the choice back um, to the child and not letting OCD make the decision. Um, yeah. I so, love those. Yeah. I love those. It's about, because the cool thing is when you're doing the exposure response prevention, if you're doing it to learn, not that the bad thing won't happen, although the bad thing won't happen and not to learning it till my anxiety goes down I'm habituating but I'm doing this exposure and response prevention in order to learn that there's room inside me for the distress for the uncertainty and so I can learn that from a really small step as well as from the really big steps there's going to be at some point where I'm going to have to take those big steps so I know that OCD is out of my life but I can start by learning it and I can learn it from exactly those three Ds you talked about before. If I delay it, then I'm inviting in the uncertainty or doing a little bit less of the ritual. And these are great opportunities to learn the same thing as if I um, did the big thing. Unfortunately, OCD will then be a, will be a dick. It'll be a rascal. Um, and we'll start saying, Ah, uh, yeah, but it didn't count for this reason or that reason, which is why we gradually increase the size of the steps and really say, no, OCD, I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to play your game anytime, anywhere, any mood, any location, any on my good days and my bad days and my sick days and my tired days and my stressed days and my relaxed days. <clears throat> I'm going to learn that your games keep showing up. And that's just the same OCD, putting on fake moustache, fake glasses, and try and find new ways to sneak back into my life. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, Rebecca. Um, and you probably have something much better to say than I do. But so I'm just saying, so you're mentioning, and it's in our, our title of our episode with exposure response prevention. So can you go a little bit more explicitly into how that might be done? I mean, I'm getting an idea based on, you know, what you're saying that you're you're experiencing the distress, you're being exposed to the distress in a, you know, a safe kind of gradual kind of hierarchical manner and and gradually you know habituating and, and, and tolerating that more and learning coping strategies and whatnot but how yeah i'm sure you can describe that a little bit better uh, uh, <laughs> happily i've been sneaking in exposure response prevention throughout this discussion um without naming it specifically erp so we expose ourselves to the thought or the feeling or the location or the object that creates the distress. And then we, that's the E exposure. And then response prevention, we don't do the compulsion that reduces the distress. And 
ERP, we've known about this for decades. What's been exciting is in the last oh, 10 to 15 years, Michelle Krask and other researchers, remember I talked before about being a blister and just talking about other people's great work. Michelle Krask has developed the inhibited learning theory of exposure and response prevention, which explains that we, we used to think when I was a student, I learned that ERP worked by habituating to anxiety. And what we know now is that actually habituation doesn't tend to generalize. I can make one particular worry go down, but the other worries don't, don't go down. And it doesn't necessarily last that long. Whereas inhibited learning theory, inhibitory learning, I'm exposing myself not so the anxiety goes down, and it's nice when it does, but so that I can learn that there's room inside me for that distress. I'm creating a new piece of learning. And in the past, I was, I saw that scary thing. Um, and I fled, or I avoided, or I did a ritual, and I learned that that thing had to be da was dangerous. Now I'm exposed to the same thing, and I'm staying with it, and I feel distressed, but there's room inside me for that distress. I can manage. I can keep going with my day and still do things that matter to me. And so I've created new learning. And so next time I come to that object, or that trigger, or that exposed that thing, I have two choices now of things I can learn. I can draw on that previous learning of I need to flee, or I can say, well, maybe I can draw on this learning and not flee and stay with it because there's room inside me for it. And so you can see how much more generalizable that is because I'm learning not, not just that this one thing I can cope with, but actually I can manage anxiety, I can manage uncertainty. The work that I do is ERP, but has a strong acceptance and commitment therapy filter put on it as well so i'm still doing erp but act brings a lot more precision to the work firstly it really makes talking about the values a lot more explicit and i don't know why you'd ever choose to do these scary things that required from erp if you didn't connect it back to your values you know i can think about that life on the other side of this work that i want the life of school of my friends my family of exploring the world of trying new things a life of vitality so act helps with that act helps with the precision of creating a bit of distance between me and my thoughts and my feelings um i'm someone who can notice that i'm having thoughts and having feelings rather than i am my thoughts and my feelings um and ACT does that. I know you had Tamar Black, so she would have explained some of these processes of helping me separate myself, create some space for my thoughts and my feelings, and incorporate connection back to the present moment so I know where I am right now. And my brain, is my OCD, is busy telling me these things are going to happen in the future. But actually, my experience has told me that OCD is a terrible predictor of the future. And it doesn't know anything more about the future than I do. And all I know is this is where I am right now. These are the thoughts I'm having right now. These are the feelings I'm having right now. And I can choose what I want to do right now. And I can choose to take a step towards the life that matters to me. That's so good. It's just 
I don't know, feel it just feels powerful. And your words and your tone is so warm and it comes through so beautifully in the book um, that I don't know. <laughs> Just having moments thinking about that, but I wonder. And I know we're coming up to the um, our our close for tonight. I could talk to you all day and all night, but um, I just I wonder about kind of subclinical OCD and also sort of the trans diagnostic way. Some of your words are landing for me because. A lot of kids struggle with intrusive thoughts and it may not be, you know, full-blown OCD or, I mean, a lot of humans, right? We all sort of have intrusive thoughts. And then I wonder if even ERP kind of by direction of our values, if we each took small steps towards things that scare us a little, but for no good reason, uh, potentially, wouldn't that be a powerful way to to accomplish what we want in this world? What a, love, what a lovely sig plug for Stuff That Sucks, um, which is the more general book on to- dealing with the thoughts and feelings that we all have. And you're absolutely right. It's the same idea of that we all have thoughts we don't like. We all have thoughts that freak us out. We all have really mean thoughts about ourselves sometimes or really worrying harsh thoughts about the future and all of us need to find times where actually I can recognize that thoughts there and it's not going to boss me around. I can recognize that feelings there and I can make space inside me for that feeling and that work that we're doing is the same as what we would be doing with some of OCD except with OCD of course we sometimes need to dig a bit deeper into this particular thoughts that have really found a way to claw into your life. Yeah, I can see how, you know, ACT would be instrumental in, in getting a person to the point where they, they want to make changes and, and, and do all that. Because like you're saying, they, they need to um, be willing. And I mean, I, I'm working with a little friend with anxiety right now and refusal to go into his classroom. And I'm just like, so how can we, how can we, and he's like, I'm just, I'm just not interested. <laughs> I just, so I need to first get him to there to the point where he wants and has a goal and wants to commit to that before he's willing to, you know, buy into the, the system that I'd like him to buy into. <laughs> so. I'll just need to confess that my six-year-old is, frequently says, I'm nervous about school. And then this morning he said, psychologists are the worst person in the world because they just, worst people in the world because they just tell you that it's fine to be nervous. And and he's kind of picked up my message too much that you're right, that's what we need to do. We need to think about why we want to be nervous and let, let that all those worries come along for the ride. Hopefully I sat to him in a kinder, more supportive way than that, but. I think we have the same conversation too many times. <laughs> That's so cute. I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that I have uh, said that to my own kids quite often that it's okay to be nervous and um, um, maybe we can all <laughs> help them see that actually being nervous says really wonderful things about them and what they care about. And so like if they can identify that and Rachel, maybe even your kiddo, if, if the kiddo can identify 
the feelings that they're having that they don't want to go in class and how they make sense. And you have the opportunity to validate that. Maybe we can get them to identify reasons why it's good to have that feeling and go into class anyway. Yeah. <sighs> it's a lot. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming. I know that you have, we want to be respectful of your time. You have another commitment that you have to get to, but thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to speak with us at the time difference and, and working that out so we it's very been much a lot of fun thank you and good luck thank, thank you to all so the school much. psychologists out there for all the amazing work that you do awesome i want to remind viewers too we have um our next episode is coming up on 12 4 and we've got dr harris here to talk about writing um instruction and intervention and all that good stuff so all right and happy night, thanksgiving everybody. to all our yeah. american viewers <laughs> <laughs> bye <laughs>